Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, July 7th. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. We're so happy you've joined us tonight. In tonight's top story, we'll report the horrifying truth about the real war on women in the U.S., human trafficking. Our guests will talk about a new study about pregnancy and abortion among trafficked women. In political news in a nutshell, Teresa will tell you about the issue that's dividing Republican presidential candidates and the hunt for a candidate to run against Wisconsin Democrat Senator Tammy Baldwin. Leslie will bring you all the latest news in abortion's changing landscape, including a look at what's happening with abortion numbers in states where it is still legal and how pro-lifers are celebrating in St. Louis. We'll close the show with a look at how an organization is working to help women in Israel choose life. You won't want to miss it. It's estimated that over 27 million people around the world experienced forced sexual exploitation or labor in 2021. The experiences of women and girls in terms of pregnancy, childbirth, and abortion was virtually unknown until now. A pilot study undertaken by three researchers looked into the sexual and reproductive health of 31 survivors of human trafficking. Two of the authors of the study are with us tonight. Laura Lederer is an attorney and a pioneer in the effort to stop human trafficking. She's the president of Global Centurion, an anti-trafficking non-governmental organization at the United Nations, the founder of the Global Fund for Women, and a former senior advisor in the U.S. State Department. Teresa Flores is a licensed social worker and survivor of sex trafficking. She's the author of numerous books, including The Slave Across the Street, and she has a Michigan law named after her. The Teresa Flores Law eliminates the statute of limitations for trafficked and sexually exploited victims. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So glad to be here. Laura, before we get into your study, can you define human trafficking for us and give us an idea of how women and girls can fall victims to it? Yes. Well, the, the, the definition comes from the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which was passed in the year 2000. And it's basically divided into three parts, action, means, and purpose. The actions are the suspect activities, recruiting, harboring, transporting, providing, obtaining, patronizing, soliciting, and advertising a person. And then there's the means through force, fraud, or coercion. And then the purpose, either forced labor or commercial sex. And that's the definition in a nutshell. And um, uh, there are lots of ways that people fall into this. Um, and I, 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 I really, Teresa should tell her story because um, it's, it's, it's one that it exemplifies what happens. I think most of the time um, in sex trafficking and domestic sex trafficking, it's a matter of uh, sort of uh, a Romeoing um, boyfriend kind of a situation in which the young um, uh, person is lured in. And, um, and then once she's fallen for somebody, then she's, she's uh, taken advantage of. But Teresa, maybe this is... Uh, maybe you'd like to tell your, your story. Yeah, so Teresa, you were trafficked as a teenager and you were still living at home. Can you share your story? Yeah, I used to think that my story was very rare um, because I still got to stay at home um, even while I was trafficked. But the more survivors that I meet, 
I find out that it um, it is pretty common. I grew up in a two-parent family, uh, went to church every Sunday, and have three younger brothers, so I'm the oldest, the only girl. Um, but I was definitely vulnerable because I didn't have a big support system um, at home. And I uh, was Irish Catholic, but we moved every two years. So that's what kind of made me very vulnerable. Um, went to high school and met a guy that was involved in, um, I would say, um, kind of a, a mafia type, uh, gang type um, organization at my school, um, a part of a much bigger network. He groomed me. Um, I was starved for attention as a 15 year old girl and like most are and he just offered me a ride home from school one day it was that simple um i said sure because i liked him even though i wasn't allowed to date at the time thinking he was going to take me home um unfortunately he didn't he took me to his house convinced me to come inside um ended up drugging me and then raping me um and then the men in this uh ring organized crime ring um, presented photos to me um, later and said that, you know, I have to earn them back or they would show the priest at church. They would show them all around school. They would show my father's um, boss at them, you know. And so initially, I mean, it, it was like a blackmail situation, a debt bondage where I was supposed to earn them back while they sold me to other men and they made money on it. And so that lasted for two years. Um, being called out at night uh, to do whatever they said. Otherwise, they would harm my brothers and my family. So a lot of threats came along with it. Um, and I was uh, really terrified um, and didn't know how to get out of that situation. So for, for me, um, it was for two years. And then um, we actually moved across country. And that's what saved God. me. I am. That's what saved me is that move. So, Wow. Well, Laura, why did you decide to look into the sexual health of trafficking survivors? Well, this rose out of a bigger study that we did on the general health issues that um, uh, domestic sex trafficking survivor, victims and survivors face. And um, in that study, we were asking all kinds of questions about physical and mental health that, you know, um, that sort of followed the uh, uh, organ systems, you know, cardiovascular and respiratory and gastro and, um, you know, um, neuro, um, um, uh, you know, health, uh, all of those kinds of, of, of issues. We and we we asked a few like throwaway questions um, about um, the uh, gynecological reproductive, uh, mostly gynecological and reproductive uh, issues, just a few uh, questions. And we started in the focus groups that Teresa and I were doing to get um, to, to get, you know, um, stories from um, um, young women who were saying, well, you know, I had this many pregnancies, I had this many abortions. And um, when we tabulated the results, we were really shocked to find that 71% had gotten pregnant at least one time. 22% had gotten pregnant five times or more during the time they were trafficked. And um, of those, there was, uh, you know, at least half had had abortion, at least one abortion, 29% had five or more abortions. And so those couple of questions helped us to understand that, that this was an area that was unexplored and that we needed to do more on. And so this second study um, uh, was a pilot to test that. And, and um, this is the results from that pilot. 
So you found that among 31 survivors reported, they, 31 survivors reported at least 119 pregnancies with 35% ending, ending in abortion. Did any of those numbers surprise you? Uh, well, it was kind of shocking to have, even for me, and I was expecting that, um, to have that many. One thing that was interesting about it was that when we first started to tabulate, it was about half that many. I think, I think we got like 70 or 80. And then when we looked at the answers, we realized that um, survivors were they were categorizing, they were coding their um, uh, abortions as not being pregnant. And so we had to go back. So we, we would ask how many times were you pregnant? And then how many, uh, um, you know, um, children did you have? How many abortions did you have? How many miscarriages did you have? How many stillborn? We had, you know, a, a lot of a sort of follow-up questions from that. And then we realized that they were saying we had this many uh, uh, pregnancies and this many abortions. And we had to add that number together to get the total number of pregnancies. Um, so, um, so, um, and when we did add that number, that was a pretty shocking number um, for only 30. This pilot study has only 30. There'll be a national study that will, um, you know, have, have be much broader. But that was that was um, that was shocking. And I think the other thing that was shocking was how many children were being born into trafficking situations, um, uh, and born and raised. Uh, in trafficking situations. I think it was like, um, uh, you know, um, the, the, some, some 44 children born to 30 survivors um, during, you know, during the time they were trapped in the trafficking. So um, there's a lot more information that we need to have on, on um, uh, you know, on all of these issues. I call it the pregnancy continuum. It's everything from birth control and then getting pregnant and then everything that can happen, you know, following preg pregnancy. Well, Teresa, tell us about some of the other findings that were eye-opening for you. Yeah, um, you know, it like Laura said, you know, of the 31 survivors that we interviewed, um, 44 had children, or four, their 44 children were products of that. Um, and only a quarter of the survivors ended up raising those children. Um, so that shows us that such a majority of children that are born end up having to go back and go into the system because the, the moms are just not in a position to raise those children. So now you have women who are trauma victims of trauma, intense everyday trauma. Um, now they're pregnant and have had multiple abortions. So they're dealing with that trauma. Um, or their children are physically removed from them and they can't have them. And so, you know, it's just a multiple um, layer upon layer of this trauma. So it shows us that the healing that has to happen is um, really intense and lifelong because of so many different things that are happening to them. Only a, a third of them received prenatal care, like for the full term. So obviously the ones that didn't, you know, their, their children are much more susceptible to um, to having developmental delays and, and problems, medical problems as well. One thing I found interesting was that among the survivors who had abortions, 82% said they regretted the abortion. Either of you, I guess, can answer why, why do you think they would have these feelings of remorse and regret? I mean, they're in such a horrific situation to start with. Yeah, I think that even though we're, um, we're in a tra traumatic situation, 
it's still a child, it's still a baby, you know, and we're women. So um, it's another way that the trafficker wins, that the, the men, the buyers who are buying us and doing these trauma, they win again. Um, and so, of course, um, the majority of the women would feel remorse in that. So, like I said, that's another layer of healing you have to do when you get out of it, if you're lucky enough to get out of it. And I would just add to that, 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 that um, uh, we, even in the first study, we were finding, um, which is what made me want to, to follow up on this, we were finding women saying, I wanted to have that baby, but my trafficker wouldn't let me, or I wanted to have that baby, but the, I, the circumstances I was in just seemed like I, I just couldn't, or I wanted to have that baby, but, you know, the people at the clinic said I couldn't because I'm not, you know, in a position to be a mother. And so they had all these, you know, sort of negative influences pressing on them. And yet still, there was that sacred bond, that something that was going on. Um, and they expressed it um, uh, in the focus groups. And that's what made us want to continue to do this, you know, to, to explore further uh, uh, this work. Yeah. All right. Well, so what can we do? What can regular people do when we hear when, you know, when what can what can we do to help stop this horrific crime against women? So, Teresa, can I just go first to follow yeah, yeah. on what on what I just said? I think one of the things that we found in this in in this pilot study is that. Um, uh, with that regret went not knowing where to turn and so um the, you know i i think i said uh, 82 percent regretted um having the abortion but they didn't know about pregnancy resource centers they didn't know about uh, adoption alternatives they didn't know about safe haven uh drop-off sites um and the safe haven laws and so i think the the that some of the work in front of us is just as simple as that it's just to get the word out about the 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 um, you know the the choices, the options, the alternatives that 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 uh, women who are pregnant have that they can have their baby and they can um, um, uh, you know um, have help from a pregnancy resource center. They can um, find a, a way to um, get their child adopted if they don't think that they can raise them, and um, and that we have these safe haven laws that that um, are in action where right after you have a child you can drop it off at a police station, a fire station, a hospital. And so getting the word out about that is one concrete thing I think we can do because the other thing that Teresa and I found is that um, many of these um, women who lost their children, if they did have them, are now reuniting with them. I was just in a focus group the other day where somebody who hadn't seen her child in 18 years, um, he was taken away when he was a baby um, by the Child Protective Services and she's reunited with him. He sought her out. And um, so there are some happy stories from all of this. If we can help women to figure out how they can, um, you know, how they can uh, uh, utilize uh, the, 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 the wonderful services that we are building for them. Yeah, I agree. Uh, most survivors are, uh, who are victims at the time don't know the resources that are out there. They don't know the options. Um, so really getting out there on the streets, um, getting in the hospitals and the clinics and, and telling people, putting up signs that there are other options um, and we're here to help you. 
um, getting them out of that situation is, is obviously the, the first priority. Um, but it'd be a nice to be in a world where men didn't buy women for sex and that we wouldn't even have to be having this discussion. So um, going after the demand, which is the people buying women um, uh, and boys and, and girls um, is something that we really need to take a better look at in our country. Um, but utilizing all the resources that we do have, the medical professionals, um, churches, anybody where survivors um, and victims would might reach out to, and even healing afterwards. Um, we at the SOAP Project do a lot of work on helping survivors heal through retreats that heal their mind, body, and soul. And like I said, it's like layers and layers of trauma. So there's a lot to be done in this issue, a lot. Oh, absolutely. Well, we'd like to thank you both for joining us this evening to share this really important work. Human trafficking is something most of us never think about, but clearly we should. So I hope you'll join us again in the future. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Thank Good night. you so much. Thank you. Ohio abortion advocates hoping to invent a right to abortion in the state constitution submitted more than 700,000 signatures to the Secretary of State on Wednesday, the filing deadline. The signatures have to be validated no later than 105 days before the November 7th election for the proposed amendment to make it on the ballot, and the advocates are confident they will exceed the required 414,000 valid signatures. But Protect Women Ohio, a pro-life coalition, continues to educate voters about the dangers of the amendment, and at an August 8th special election, voters will be asked if the threshold for changing the Constitution should be 60% instead of the current 50% plus one vote. Pro-lifers believe abortion advocates will not be able to persuade 60% of Ohio voters that abortion is a right that should remain beyond the reach of any efforts to restrict it. If the amendment does pass in November, all laws protecting the unborn, their mothers, and healthcare workers will be repealed. Monday, July 10th, is the last day to register to vote in the August 8th election, and early voting will begin Tuesday. The Associated Press has reported that pro-abortion amendments in other states have passed with more than 55% of the vote, but less than 60%. The August 8th special election seems to be generating, generating more early voter enthusiasm than last summer's state legislative elections. Through last Friday, voters in a sampling of 15 county, counties surveyed by Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer had requested 29,336 absentee mail ballots, compared to 4,820 at the same time on the election calendar ahead of the state's primary election in August 2022. A coalition of pro-life groups is calling on Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives to end the Department of Defense policy that provides travel expenses and paid time off for abortion. In a letter sent last week, the pro-life groups called the policy illegal and said lawmakers should deploy the National Defense Authorization Act to end the practice. Rather than, rather than focusing on confronting the serious challenges facing our country, President Biden and Secretary Austin have unnecessarily dragged the military into the middle of a, device, a divisive political issue and attempted to co-opt military resources in furtherance of an unrelated partisan ideological agenda, the letter said. Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville has halted unanimous consent requests for candidates for military promotions, forcing the Senate to either schedule hearings for each nominee or leave them unconfirmed. In New York State, where women can abort their babies up until their due dates, Democrats are vowing to spend $20 million on television and digital ads to push their 2024 ballot amendment that would make it impossible for future lawmakers to protect babies from abortion. The amendment, placed on the 2024 ballot by the state legislature in January, 
would ban discrimination on the basis of ethnicity, national origin, age, disability, and sex. It would also institute protections for sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, pregnancy outcomes, and reproductive health care and autonomy. A group called New Yorkers for Equal Rights is spearheading the initiative with help from U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Planned Parenthood, the NAACP, and the ACLU. Arizona's Democrat Governor Katie Hobbs is sticking to her guns on abortion. Twelve of the state's 15 county attorneys have called for Hobbs to rescind her recent executive order that limits them from prosecuting abortion-related cases. The letter sent to Hobbs on Monday said the governor's office should not interfere with the discretion of prosecutors in fulfilling their duties as elected officials. A spokesman for Hobbs said she will not rescind the order. States have begun publishing statistics on how the fall of Roe v. Wade has impacted abortion numbers in the last year. As we reported previously, 9,800 babies in Texas owe their lives to the heartbeat bill enacted September 1, 2021, and the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe. Georgia's heartbeat law is credited with a 50% drop in abortion, but that's not the case for all states. In states that are adjacent to those where near-total bans are enforced, the numbers are rising. In South Carolina, where the state Supreme Court has yet to rule on a heartbeat law, abortions increased by 1,000 in 2022. Abortions in Nebraska were up 6% in 2022. Governor Jim Pillen, a Republican, signed a 12-week law in May that could start to bring those numbers back down. In Minnesota, 12,175 abortions were performed in 2022, up 20% from 2021. More than 2,000 abortions were performed on out-of-state residents. In Indiana, abortions were up 13%. A law that would pr protect nearly all babies from abortion continues to be blocked by a challenge brought by the ACLU. But in better news, some adoption agencies are reporting an increase in the number of infant adoptions. A Texas adop adoption agency that places babies nationwide said infant adoptions there are up 20%. Life News is reporting that Missouri pro-lifers celebrated another victory for life last week when a judge blocked the city of St. Louis from forcing taxpayers to pay for abortions. Missouri Attorney General Andre Bailey sued St. Louis last year after Democrat leaders created the Reproductive Equity Fund to help women afford the cost of killing their babies. Under the scheme, the city would use $1.75 million in federal COVID relief money to pay for women to travel out of state for abortion. Bailey said in a statement on Saturday that, quote, as long as I'm attorney general, my office will continue to use every tool at its disposal to protect the unborn. Our children are worth the fight. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards, a rare pro-life Democrat, signed a new tax credit for those who donate to pregnancy resource centers. Donors will be able to benefit from $30 million worth of income tax breaks that will be issued from 2025 through 2030. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has called the legislature into a special session Tuesday to pass abortion legislation. I believe the pro-life movement is the most important human rights cause of our times, Reynolds said in a statement Wednesday. Not only will I continue to fight against the inhumanity of abortion, but I will also remain committed to supporting women in planning for motherhood, promoting fatherhood and parenting, and continuing policies that encourage strong families. The Iowa Supreme Court deadlocked 3-3 last month on the constitutionality of a heartbeat bill. The tied vote triggered a permanent block of the law. Abortion is legal in Iowa through 20 weeks. And finally, Gerson Fuentes, a 28-year-old Ohio resident in the country illegally, was sentenced to life in prison for the rape of a 10-year-old girl whose abortion in Indiana became an international story. Fuentes pleaded guilty to two counts of rape of the girl who was nine at the time. Indiana abortionist Caitlin Bernard went to the Indianapolis Star with the story, saying the girl's pregnancy was too far advanced for her to have the abortion in Ohio, so she performed it in Indiana. 
In May, the Indiana Licensing Board reprimanded Bernard and fined her $3,000 for violating patient confidentiality. Fuentes will be eligible for parole in 25 years. And that's abortion in the news. Republicans are split on whether their presidential contenders should embrace a federal 15-week ban on abortion as the party tries to find its footing on the issue going into 2024. In a radio ad released last week in Iowa, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott vowed to back the 15-week ban. That ad followed a call last month from former Vice President Mike Pence, who urged the other candidates to embrace a law that would protect babies from abortion at 15 weeks. But the issue has continued to dog other candidates, including former President Trump, and has sparked disagreement among pro-life groups over how candidates should be handling the issue on the campaign trail. What's interesting is that neither DeSantis or Trump, who are the two, for lack of a better term, frontrunners, neither one of them are really saying what they're trying to do in terms of federal legislation, Ralph Reed, the founder of the influential Faith and Freedom Coalition, told reporters last week at the group's annual gathering. So others are trying to try to force them, and it will be very fascinating to see how it plays out. And then by the time we get to the convention in Milwaukee, we'll have a platform and there will be a position, he added. Trump has dodged whether he would support a national ban, but noted during the Faith and Freedom Coalition event that there remains a vital role for the federal government in protecting unborn life. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who signed a six-week ban on the proceed procedure in his home state in April, has also avoided wading in on the federal limits. But he struck a similar tone to Trump, saying in an interview in May that there's a role for both the federal government and states. Although Pence and Scott have backed 15-week limits, it's unclear whether other candidates will rally around that number. But some have already said they see it as reasonable. Ralph Reed noted that anti-abortion candidates need to stop being afraid of their own shadow on the issue. What will not work is what our candidates and campaigns tried to do in 22, which was never talk about it and only talk about inflation and gas prices and think that this would go away, Reed said. National pro-life groups have notably disagreed over what kind of federal limits candidates should be supporting and even whether they should talk about it at all. Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America, offered a sharp rebuke to Trump's campaign in April after his campaign suggested Trump supported the issue of abortion being handled at the state level. SBA Pro-Life America President Marjorie Dannenfelser said they would not back any GOP contenders who don't embrace at a minimum a 15-week national standard to stop painful late-term abortions while allowing states to enact further protections. Lila Rose, the president of the pro-life group Live Action, said that although a 15-week national limit would be an improvement to the existing federal lack of law, she wanted to see something closer to heartbeat protections, limits generally at the six-week mark. But not all conservatives and Republicans are on board with any type of federal ban. Republican presidential candidate and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley said Republicans need to stop demonizing opponents on the abortion issue and criticize bills in some states seeking to put women who get abortions in jail. 
In an interview with Shannon Bream on Fox News Sunday, Haley, who is one of several declared GOP candidates for the 2024 election, was asked her thoughts about the former vice president and presidential candidate Mike Pence's call for all GOP contenders to support a nationwide ban on abortions at 15 weeks as a federal standard minimum. First of all, Shannon, we do have to be honest with the American people, and I don't think that they've been honest with them at all, Haley said. Describing herself as absolutely pro-life unapologetically, Haley added that she supports life not as a Republican talking point, but because of her own life experience, citing the fact that her husband was adopted and her own struggles with pregnancy. Haley suggested Republicans should work towards a consensus among voters on short interim steps in the controversial and divisive issue of abortion and encourage good quality adoptions. Wisconsin Democrat U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin is still waiting for a Republican opponent to step forward to challenge her next year. Baldwin officially launched her campaign for a third term in April. Several Republicans are considered, considering making a run, including Madison businessman Eric Hovid, Franklin businessman Scott Mayer, and U.S. Representative Tom Tiffany. Congressman Mike Gallagher of Green Bay and Ryan Steele of Janesville have previously announced they won't run for the U.S. Senate. Former Milwaukee County Sheriff David A. Clark Jr. has also floated a Senate challenge. And that's political news in a nutshell. A few days after American pro-lifers celebrated the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Israel went in the other direction, easing its regulation of abortion. The new rules, approved by a parliamentary committee, grant women access to abortion pills through the country's universal health system and remove a long-standing requirement that women appear physically before a special committee before they are permitted to terminate a pregnancy. Estimates say one-fifth of all pregnancies in Israel end in abortion. And though the government pays for a staggering 20,000 abortions yearly, an equal or greater number are also performed privately. Yet despite the nation's deeply rooted respect for life, Israel is one of the only countries in the world where it is legal to abort a baby up until birth. We have with us tonight Mr. Nir Salom Solomon, the executive director of Efrat, an organization in Israel that is giving women the support they need to choose life. Welcome to the show, Nir. Thank you very much. Nir, thank you so much for joining us. But before we discuss the wonderful work that Ifrat does, um, could you expand a little bit about the abortion situation in Israel? Yeah, what we've discovered actually is, like you said, Israel is deeply rooted in its respect for life. So in reality, the main driving force behind abortion is economic pressure. It's the same in the United States as well, I'm sure you know. And many, many women face this dilemma either married or unmarried, face this dilemma that they don't believe that they actually really have a choice to also keep the child. We see this propaganda in America, and we see it in Israel as well. Those who is, try to champion choice are not really giving women a choice when they are strapped financially or are being told that they don't really have a choice because they can't afford having a child or another child. So that's really the driving force that's happening here in Israel. It's not disrespect for life. Well, I love what the Efrat website says, that your vision is a world where every woman who wants to have her baby can. Since 1977, right. I think, Efrat has been supporting women, and it appears you're offering much more than just diapers. Tell us about the services you provide. 
Right. So when we re recognize the fact that the women are being pressured into terminating their pregnancy, our question to them is one, what do you really want? So now they're pregnant. So their baby is forthcoming. Do you want to keep that child? Do you want to mother that child or not? And their answer is overwhelmingly yes, but how can we do that? So the first thing we give them is the sense that they are not alone. It's their decision that we will hold them with, hold their hand as they go through this journey. And then they say, well, one of the reasons we feel alone is because everybody's telling us we can't afford to have a child. We all know that having a child is an expensive ordeal. It doesn't end when the baby's born. But we tell them if what you're worried about is the immediate additional expenses to having that child, we alleviate all of those expenses. So we don't only provide diapers. When the baby's born, we provide everything the baby needs, a crib, a carriage, a baby bath, everything that this woman expresses to us that provides her anxiety. How is she going to provide? We will make sure that's taken care of. And then oftentimes, most of the women we deal with are actually married. And the husbands say, well, okay, so let's say we have a crib and we have a carriage. How can we afford continuously providing for that child? So we provide for two years additional assistance in the form of diapers, baby formula, and additional basic, basic needs that that family needs, even if it's basic food for the family, just alleviating the pressure. And then we know that once the pressure is removed, a mother, a wonderful woman wants to be a mother and her husband or her boyfriend want to be a father, but we just need to let them make that decision out of comfort and not out of distress. That's where we're at. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I've read some of the stories on on the from the women that are on your website that you helped, and they're they're all amazing. But do you have a favorite story that you could share with us? I can't say I have a favorite, but I'll share with you one of the many, 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 many favorites. So we have a woman. Her name is Hannah. And recently, she actually spoke at an event of ours, and it's just so moving to hear. She's an Ethiopian immigrant to Israel who became pregnant and was literally, literally forced to terminate her pregnancy. We talk about forced abortions. I'm sure you deal with that in the United States. She was actually sent a lawyer's letter that she must terminate her pregnancy. She took that letter to her neighbor, who's a lawyer. She scheduled already an abortion. And she said to her, you know, I'm going to have an abortion. Don't worry, don't worry. But what do I do with this lawyer's letter? So the lawyer said to her, well, you don't have to do anything with the lawyer's letter. They have absolutely no standing. You could throw that into the garbage. But I have a bigger question to you, the lawyer said. What do you really want? Do you want to terminate this pregnancy? Or do you want to have the child? She said, of course I want to have the child. But they basically painted a picture that I'm not even legally allowed to have this child. She said, well, listen, Hannah, I don't know how you can proceed. But what I can tell you is, is if you want to have this child, you have to call Efrat. Efrat's an organization that helps women like you. Just give them a call. I've never spoken with them, but I know what they do. She called up Efrat, and her story goes that she heard somebody on the other side of the phone. Her name is Ruti Dhar, our chief social worker, who just told her, Hana, you're not alone. If you want to have the child, we will be there with you. This child was born on the eighth day of Hanukkah, the holiday of lights, where we light 
the Hanukkah candles for eight days. He was born on the eighth day of Hanukkah, and she called him Yair. Yair in Hebrew means to enlighten. She says not only was Yair born on the holiday of lights, but Yair enlightened my life forever. Today he's nine years old, a soccer player. He plays musical instruments. He plays the trumpet. And she's a proud and happy mother whose life changed 180 degrees for the better. He brought light into her life. We know every child is a blessing. But we know when these women are under stress, we need to be there for them with love. That's, I would say, one of my favorite stories, but we just have thousands of them. Thank God. Yeah, that is a beautiful story. You're making us cry. Yeah. <laughs> About how many women are you able to help each year? We help over 3,000 women wow. every single year. Uh, today we're at the rate of 3,500 women. We've helped over 84,000. I think the number is 238 to date. So just if you can imagine, we have a large warehouse in the center of Jerusalem where we package over 3,500 monthly packages that go out to women everywhere in Israel, all the way from Metula up north to Elat down in the south and wide uh, everywhere in Israel. However, my favorite part of this warehouse actually is not inside with the thousands of packages, but it's at the door. At the entrance to the warehouse is the daily delivery. The daily delivery consists of what we call the initial birthing package, which includes the carriage, the crib, the baby bath, clothing for the baby, bottles, ev everything. That package is sent every single day a baby's born. So you can imagine if we're servicing over three and a half thousand women a year, we have a bunch of these packages every single day, which are really a testament to more babies born and the fate of these women who wanted to have the child now changed forever. We all know the trauma that women go through when they have to undergo an abortion, not something they've chosen, they probably don't even know the meaning of the abortion. And when they wake up the day after the trauma that a lot of these women go through, here there's a baby born and a happy mother has her life enlightened with a child or another child that's not always necessarily the first. Wow. Well, we are truly inspired, but before we say goodbye, Neo, could you please tell our viewers how can they help you, Frat? So the first way you can help is pray. We all need to pray together that God should give women strength to stand on their own and have the right to make the right choice. It's their choice to make. We have to enable them to have that ability. That's number one. Number two, go onto our website, cribefrat.org. Kribifrat.org is our website. You can learn about us, connect with us, and contribute. The entire package I mentioned to you, surprisingly enough, the entire package of the two years of support, the initial birthing package, the counseling that we provide, we provide another program called Working Moms where we give vocational assistance and training. We recently opened up a shelter for women so that we can house them in this shelter during their pregnancy where they have nowhere to live provide them vocational training and assistance, keep them in this center for six months after the baby's born with their newborn child, and then we can streamline them back into society where they are strong on their feet and nobody can pressure them anymore to do something they don't want to do. 
But the entire package to make the difference between a woman choosing an abortion and a woman choosing what she really wanted is to have this child cost $1,500. $125 a month for a year makes a difference between a woman with full of joy having this child, a child being born, or a woman unfortunately waking up the day after realizing she was forced to do something she didn't want to do, and obviously that child not coming into this world. So check us out on cribifrat.org. Connect to us on Facebook so that you can see all the beautiful stories, more than what I just shared with you today. We, we publicize them all of the time, and you can see how one woman at a time, one precious soul at a time, we're able to really change the landscape in Israel. And I'll just share one more thing. Imagine in Israel today, this organization has been around for over 45 years having supported, directly supported, over 84,000 women. We don't know how many other women, just because of our educational arms, made the choice at life and really had their life enlightened. But imagine the impact, the overall impact of all of these 84,000 over time. There could be about half a million Israelis walking around the streets of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, going and bathing in the Dead Sea and in the Kinneret, and all as a result of a little bit of love and support of the Efrat organization. It's a real privilege. And thank you for at least sharing this on your show. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about it. Yes, this was yes. great. So nice to, talking to you, and, and we appreciate your passion and, and all the work that you're doing. So thank and you. And we welcome everybody. When you're in Israel, come visit us. Visit our warehouse. Meet the women. Meet the work that we do, and you'll see the impact firsthand. And obviously, come to Israel. Israel is a wonderful country. You'll enjoy every moment of it. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, okay. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will tune in every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. If you like our show, please support us by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priest for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating God's people to end abortion. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. For all your pro-life news updates during the week, please follow us on Twitter at Pro-Life News Show. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.